How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Samuel Packard of WEI.com, and I'm joined, as always, by Jared Weiss of CLNSRadio.com. Jared, how are you doing today? You know, every take we do to do this intro, your voice gets more and more ridiculous. It's incredible. I can't keep it together. Listeners out there, you're going to have to guess what take this is based on how ridiculous my voice was for the past 15 Somewhere seconds. Somewhere between 6 and 12, we'll guess. But we got a good show coming up here. Danny LaRue of Real GM and Sporting News will join us uh, for a conversation that starts with the Celtics and works its way around the NBA. Danny LaRue is an absolute expert in all things CBA, trades, uh, scouting. He's, he's great. He's, I've known him for a few years now, and he's one of my favorite people talking about basketball. So that's going to be a great conversation here. Uh, Sam, the Celtics have, are just – they pretty much have been on fire for the last few weeks now. They have hit their stride. We're going to talk about that with Danny, but I just quickly want to get your feel for the team right now. They're playing considerably better than they have earlier in the season. No surprise, the return of Marcus Smart to the lineup. And I think the two games this week are kind of evidence of that. On Tuesday night against the Knicks, they could not hit a three-pointer, and that's the type of game that they would have lost earlier in the season. They managed to gut that out and actually get a win, attack the basket. Then on Wednesday night against the Pistons, they had a huge fourth-quarter lead. They let it slip away a little bit, and earlier in the season, that's the type of game where they would have let the entire game go and ended up losing. They did enough to hold on. Tyler Zeller's back. Tito Zeller, my mainest man. Evan Turner's having great fourth quarters. I think they're playing really well, but they've kind of had a easier schedule of late, and they're yeah. going to have a real test on Friday night against the Cavs. Well, you know, the thing is... Uh... Isaiah Thomas, over the last two months, has been just one of the best offensive players in the NBA. He's been great. But the offensive system, especially in the first quarter, is actually starting to look like a legitimate offense. I mean, I saw, I'd say on Wednesday night's game against the Pistons was the first time I felt for an entire half they actually executed really well. Something that we we don't use that phrase that much around here anymore in the post-Big 3 era. But they were just, they were passing so well. And I love seeing Isaiah Thomas out there off the ball and seeing Kelly Olynyk distributing the ball from the top of the key. I absolutely loved it. They had so much spacing that all sorts of backdoor cuts are going on, whether it was Jared Solinger, Avery Bradley. I mean, they had so much, that really opened everything up for them. And I'm really excited to see if they could do that against a team like Cleveland. I think the kind of most interesting stat, um, in this kind of eight-game stretch has been assist percentage because the team plays remarkably better when their assist percentage is over 60%, and they're actually averaging right around 60 for the past eight games. 
And if something they can continue, then they can really compete with any team if they're moving the ball as well as they have been the past two weeks. All right, we have Danny LaRue of Real GM and Sporting News. He hosts the Real GM podcast. He is co-hosting the Dunked On podcast with Nate Duncan. Danny, thank you for joining us here on the WEI Celtics podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, first off, trade season is approaching very rapidly. The Celtics are the, you know, the, the major player out there as far as someone begging anybody to take their assets to make some sort of deal. And it's it, it, I feel like Ainge has been so active that there's almost a watering down of assets since he one has so many, two he has that four draft picks for Justice Winslow report hanging over his head. And three, the team is kind of in a situation where they're looking to make a big jump or they might just sit this one out. So what do you see as like the Celtics overall trade position right now? I think that they're in a nice spot because they're successful enough right now to be satisfied. I think the most dangerous position to be in is when you feel pressure to do something, especially something big. The best example of that would probably be what the Kings did on July 1st, you know, where they moved, they moved a lot of assets for not a whole lot. But so the, the Celtics don't have to do that, which is good. The downside, though, is that they're looking for players that will make them a lot better, and those just do not come on the market very much. So you know, you can talk about, you know, like yeah, sure, it'd be great if they could get Demarcus Cousins, but that requires, since he's under contract, that requires the Kings saying, hey, we want to put Demarcus Cousins on on, on the market, and we want what you have. And the Celtics really don't want to ruin any of their long-term salary cap um, goals. They don't want to get a player unless it has a great contract for multi-year. Are there any players out there that could be on the market? I'm thinking like a Jared Dudley that the Celtics could potentially add that's not at that star level. Hmm. Uh, I mean, Danilo Gallinari is an interesting one. He only does, he only has one more year after this year, and then he has a player option, which would be expected to decline, but he also has bird rights, so at that point, you know, if they've spent the money they're going to spend. I like Gallinari a lot. He does he does conflict a little bit with um, with Olenek just because they do some they do some similar things, but he's a good player. It's, it's hard, though, because there just aren't that many bad contracts now, so what the Celtics would need to do is they would need to unload, they would need to give up some of their assets. That, that is to say, though, that for the right guy, it'd be worth it, of course. I mean, does incremental improvement make sense for this team if it if it clogs up the cap for the summer, where they're looking at at least $25 million probably in cap space. If they let go of Amir Johnson and Jonas Repko, they could be looking at almost $40 million in cap space. I think that's a good way of putting it, that incremental. Yeah, you're give, the opportunity cost for Boston is higher because they, have, they, have, they could do something really meaningful with that space. I mean, the, it, that space will be less valuable this summer than almost any other summer, but it's still very useful to have. And also, if you're thinking about, you know, unloading Amir Johnson, let's say, somebody will give up, even if it's a small asset, would give up an asset for him if that presented itself. But the Celtics don't have any pressure to do that unless they already get a commitment from somebody. So with all those assets, which do you see as more valuable? Is it a current player like Jay Crowder or Avery Bradley, or is it something like the Brooklyn pick or Brooklyn picks to come down the road? I think it's Probably the Brooklyn 2016 pick, and the reason for that is, well, I really like Jay Crowder. You have team control on him on a good contract for five years. If you let's say the Brooklyn pick, let's say you expect that it'll be top five. I think that's a fair a fair range with it. Maybe you know, maybe it drops down to six. You have that player under team control for eight years, possibly nine if you're willing to give them a fifth year, and you get it on a super cheap contract right as the collective bargaining agreement is, is about to might change and the salary cap is about to explode. 
So, yeah, there's a, a very meaningful chance that is going to be a less good player than Jay Crowder, Isaiah Thomas, somebody in, of that ilk. But the flexibility that you get because of it is really nice. I mean, how many players up top of, that, of this draft do you think are worth sitting out making a trade for like a, a maybe not like a DeMarcus Cousins level player, but a, a really good player? Not that many. I, I actually think this draft isn't that good, but the market the market of who you could get for that pick right now isn't great. It's actually one of the more interesting kind of asset management questions out there because with that pick is it's it's going to change in value dramatically the day the lottery happens. And so if you, if you're moving it now, you're kind of selling high and selling low on it at the same time. That said, if you could get DeMarcus Cousins, who I think is one of the ten best players in the league, you do that. And the other real challenge for the Celtics in terms of moving it, let's say, in the near term before the deadline, is that a lot of the good players that could conceptually be available for it are going to be free agents relatively soon. And in that case, you're just sitting there going, well, A, could we have just signed that player outright? Like, let's say Al Horford. Like, let's say you, let's say Atlanta said, we'll do that, we'll do that trade. You could have probably tried to sign him outright, and the present value is there, but it's not huge. And you, you also have the question of, will they resign? So, while I don't think the pick will turn into something valuable necessarily, you don't have a lot that you can, tra- you can transform it into right now that would be really nice. Uh, speaking of the first-round picks the Celtics have in 2016, they have three first-rounders, and they also have nine guaranteed contracts going into that season, plus, we've already mentioned, possibly $40 million in cap space, so you've got to think they're going to add someone. That, to me, screams like there's a, a space problem. They just don't have enough roster spots to tr- add three new rookies. Do the Does Danny Ainge have to trade kind of the Mavericks pick and their own pick, or do they draft and stash? What's the strategy moving forward with those three? I think what you have to do, what you owe it to yourself, is you just take the best player available, and if something, you know, you have a whole offseason of moves to go, and the nice thing for the Celtics is that just about every player that they have, I would say everybody that's under contract beyond this season, is an asset. So if you have to clear somebody, let's say you draft, you end up that you have a player on your board. Let's say like RJ Hunter. Like let's say they have, they have a guy. Let's say at 25 on their board, and then the next best guy is 35. But he's an, he's a guy who wants to play in the NBA right away. You take the better player, and if they're good enough to make your team, then you let some you trade somebody else for something else. And if they're not good enough, then you make a different decision. So I, I think. It, it, of course, if you, you're more inclined, it's kind of like a tiebreaker if that player doesn't want to come over right away. But there are also at the point now where you have a lot of kind of middling young assets like Rozier, James Young, and all those guys. And I feel like you do kind of owe it to yourself at some point to just make a decision on one or two of those guys, even though I like all of them, just because you can't have, with a 15-person roster, you can't have that many guys of that kind of caliber. Well, isn't there an impetus to at least start playing them a little bit more consistently just to see what kind of just to see what you can project out of them? Certainly, but at the same time, you're as good as you are. That's why you hope that you have a really good D League staff because then you can you can assess them in that way and in practice. You know, you don't have to get that necessarily through NBA games. But yeah, I would you know when when possible, I would love to give them like let's say the Celtics have a 15 point lead in the fourth quarter, give those guys eight minutes and see what they do. That has been something that Brad Stevens is really reluctant to do. He's very focused on winning, and uh, rookies like Hunter and Rozier don't really see the game or see the floor until the final seconds. So that's something that 
you'd kind of want Brad Stevens to do, but you don't want to sacrifice kind of the the short term goals of being as as good as you can this season. And the thing is, the the fifteen point leads in the fourth quarter have been tight games. It's um, right. it, it just happened to the Celtics last or Wednesday night against the Pistons, where they were up twenty four and the Pistons got uh, into it. Was it almost a two possession game there? So. Uh, the really, there's been no lead in the fourth quarter. That's been saved for the Celtics. I mean, you're someone that watches the entire league. Can you think of any other at least solid teams out in the NBA that are so tenuous with their leads in the fourth quarter, like the Celtics are? Are we counting Memphis? Oh, we, they're yeah, they're a team in they're the NBA. definitely the one I was thinking of. Yeah, I mean, Memphis has a has a problem that can be somewhat similar to Boston, where they just don't have the ability to blow teams out because they don't have the regular firepower. Boston has guys that I like more for that. They just they just don't have a ton of them. You know, nobody, nobody else is the Warriors. That's why the Warriors are the Warriors. But Boston has, has that. And also, I mean, they have a lot of good guys, but they don't. The, the bench, I, I think that one of my issues with them has been that there isn't really, a, I call it a cohesive theory of the bench. And some of that is also because they've had guys who are hurt. You know, you think about how that, how that can strike a balance. And so I think they'll figure all of that out. But, you know, that, that's kind of where Boston is. But if you're winning as many games as they're winning, it doesn't matter. I mean, it would be helpful if the fourth quarter was a little bit more dominant. But if you're still winning, it's okay. Well, now that the Celtics are pretty much healthy for the first time this year at a consistent level, they're going back to those three-guard lineups in the fourth quarter, which tend to be some of their most effective, I'd say, long-term fourth-quarter lineups where they have smart Bradley and Isaiah Thomas out there with usually some combination of Jay Crowder and then, like, a shooting big like Olenek or Solinger. And we've seen that that lineup, those kind of lineups are cropping up a lot around the league. Do you think it's something that is effective even in the playoffs or just long-term for the NBA? Yeah, I, I think that the concept of having your five best players out there is generally something that can hold, especially if they have the defensive versatility that those guys do. I mean, you're, you're always making trade-offs with, with that kind of a situation. You know, If you're going smaller, usually there's something that could be exploited, but Marcus Smart is a guy who can defend players who are bigger than he is. Jay Crowder can do the same. So for me, the more playmaking and the more passing and the more shooting you can have on the floor, you can do that. And especially if you have intelligent defenders, which Boston does, you don't get a lot of the negative trade-offs. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason that some of these lineups are succeeding is that you have unusually talented players doing it, and they're capable. And I mean, a big part of it has been Kelly Olynyk who most of the season, and even last year, looked like a guy that was a good player who just couldn't hit a jump shot. Now that he's shooting really well from downtown, he's been a very good player. So what's your take on him from afar, especially the way that his personality, I think his encore personality, his encore aggressiveness, and his ability to think on the move have really improved a lot over the last few months? I really like him. He, he's a guy who offensively brings more to the table than mo- not only most guys his size, but just most players in the league. He can handle the ball pretty well. His shot is getting a lot better, as you said. And his passing, I think, has been underrated since his college days. I think he was a pretty good passer when he was at Gonzaga. It's something he does. The weakness with him at center is just that you don't have that traditional rim protector, which I love and I think a lot of other people do too. It helps you know create your, create your identity. But the idea of that is that what he brings offensively is so hard to adjust to for teams that are basically forcing themselves to play traditionally that you're getting more than you're giving up. And I think that's definitely true. And also Boston, can, in those lineups that we were talking about, they play enough capable defenders that you reduce the, possi- you, you reduce the need for a rim protector by just stopping guys before they get there. So when the game gets more physical, especially in the playoffs, is that something you think Olenek can handle? 
I think so. Because I, I, what, what you bring when you're a capable shooter, and especially when you can pass, I think that's the underrated part of all this. It's not just a guy who, you know, let's, let's compare him, not, not comparing him as a player, but let's say to Danny Green. Like, Danny Green is a really nice shooter, but that's what he does offensively. Olenek, if somebody's closer on him and closes out, then he can, he can dribble, he can make a pass. And the physical part of it, yeah, you know, there, there will be certain teams. The bigger downside there is that once you get in the playoffs, the players get better. And so there, you know, there's less to exploit. But I still think that a floor-stretching five is something that can work. I mean, you think about Cleveland as an example. Depending on what lineup they use, they have that. That's a team that has a lot of picks that don't like defending out in space. So you're you're definitely giving something up on the other end. But the lack of real solid back to the basket bigs in this league is something that makes those lineups more possible. Well, let's talk about the playoffs some more. The Celtics have had a huge bench advantage this year, and it's really where they've been building most of their leads. The bench has actually outperformed the starters. But in the playoffs, when the rotations get smaller, you're not going to have that similar bench advantage. So are the Celtics kind of doomed when they kind of playing a team like the Cavaliers when they're only going to play seven or eight guys? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean. So okay, maybe the, not the Cavaliers, but uh, uh, just in general, they're not going to have that advantage from the bench. Is that something that's they're going to struggle with moving forward, or once it gets to the playoffs, they'll struggle with it until their roster gets to the level where they'll have, where they'll, they won't have to do, you know, make that decision. That's part of what they have to do in the, you know, let's say in the next eighteen months is you want to get better on the top end so that you don't have to make that. So you don't have to make that kind of a sacrifice. Like for, as you said, tightening up the rotations doesn't help Boston too much, but it helps opponents a lot. So that's why you're trying to combine these assets and turn some of these existing players into better players because then you do that. But teams that are well coached, teams that compete on defense, will do better than expected. But yeah, I mean that's why I, I, I semi sarcastically said during the season or before the season started that if I could have made a bet on anything, it would have been for Boston to lose in the first round which was not meant as a criticism. It was just meant as that's how this team is constructed for right now. And when you're young and when you have cap space, that's not a bad thing because if you are if you are a team without a clear-cut top-10 player, or in the Celtics case probably without a top-20, that's a really impressive accomplishment to make the playoffs and do as well as they've done, and there's no shame in that at all. Well, that's what they did last year, so the bar is already set a step above that. And, of course, they had Cleveland last year, and they were one Jay Crowder fadeaway three from facing Atlanta. So they're looking at this as, we should have beaten Atlanta last year. We're going to come out this year and make a run for the conference finals. And they're going to be, I think, as an organization, pretty disappointed if they can't make it that far. Yeah, and, and, you know, expectations are a part of this. But at the same time, you you can't jump that you kind of can't, can't jump it unless you actually have the assets that they do but patience is what works out the way that i would i would kind of talk about that is you know look at kind of what new orleans did new orleans sat there and they they looked at anthony davis who's an incredible player and they said oh let's, let's build around him right now you know let's build a better team let's get these established players and it didn't work out you you really can't do that and expectations are a part of this i'm not going to say they aren't but if you're danny Ainge, you can't sacrifice your long-term vision because losing in the first round would be disappointing. Well, you know, the thing is Danny Ainge has been working this long-term vision for a few years now, and especially with this upcoming Brooklyn pick, it seems like he's at the point where it's time to – the chips are kind of – they're moving from the point of being future chips to being present assets. 
So does Ainge, I mean, whether it's the trade deadline, which I don't think there's a huge impetus to make a move at the deadline because what kind of move are you going to make that's going to actually make you a title contender when you have two of the greatest teams in NBA history over in the Western Conference and the Cavaliers with all the talent they have? It seems like the summer is the time where you could actually strike. But how much is there kind of like what Philly's going through? What point do the Celtics hit where it's like time to accelerate the the process? I think it... uh... It depends on how they use their cap space this summer. You know, if they can woo a good player, then you can use those you can use those assets to build on top of that. Then you, I think, you accelerate the process. But if you, I'm not going to say if you strike out, but if you just don't get, let's say, those top tier guys, then maybe you have to hold off a little bit just because you you know you can't do as much with it. But they're also uh, it's it's a very compelling thing. Uh, Nate Duncan and I've been talking about this for when we've been doing these deadline previews. Is that once a draft pick becomes a player, it becomes, from in most situations, it becomes a lot less valuable because it's it's kind of like that mystery box on Family Guy where you know it could be anything. It could even be a boat, <laughs> and and so teams teams just fall in love with that possibility. And so once it's a player, you know, hopefully it works out. You know, hopefully you get Miles Turner at eleven. You know, you get somebody who who outperforms their spot. That's the dream. It does happen sometimes. But usually then you're not going to trade that person. And so, you know, more often than not, you you want to move the if, – if you're not sold on anybody, you want to move the pick before the pick is made. And so that might be where the rubber meets the road is just that you – let's say, let's say they end up with the fourth pick. You just pray that some other team is in love with another person there and they're, they, it's just going to take everything they have to get up there. And even though that might mean getting more – smaller assets, you know, if that's the best use of it, and then you try to coalesce that into something else. So you better hope that everyone thinks that Dragon Bender is the next Kristaps Porzingis. Uh, yeah, or you hope or you hope that you get the second pick and it's Simmons or Ingram. I mean, it, it could go a lot of different ways, and that's why the Brooklyn pick is so interesting, is because it's not a situation of protection, it's just a question of value, because wherever, you know, if that ends up being three or it ends up being six, the value to the Celtics, but in some ways, more importantly, to other teams, changes dramatically. All right, Danny, we're going to turn to some of Twitter questions we got. This is from at Steve for three. If Danny Ainge happens to offer a max contract to Harrison Barnes, uh, should the Warriors match that contract? Yeah, because the the challenge for and this is why getting restricted free agents is so hard is because. The teams oftentimes, let's say with the Warriors with Harrison Barnes, if they just let him go, let's say they thought he was overpaid, if they just let him go for nothing, they couldn't do much to replace him. And, of course, the Warriors are a team that doesn't have a lot of margin for error with the Spurs and the Cavs and everyone else breathing down their neck. So you, you have to do that. And a point that I've been making a little bit with this and we will do more heavily in the near future is even if they don't think that Harrison Barnes is worth that money, you match it, and then you tr- you eventually, probably before the end of that season, trade him to somebody else who does. If they were to match the Harrison Barnes contract, that would effectively take them out of the Kevin Durant sweepstakes with Woj saying repeatedly that the Warriors could be a player. What was your reaction to that, and is that something that's actually kind of a feasible option? I mean, how much better can this Warriors team be? Do they need to actually go out and get someone like Kevin Durant? Uh, a couple things. Uh, first off, because of the way the timeline works, actually, it would not it would not impact the Kevin Durant sweepstakes oh, really? because the Kevin Durant sweepstakes would already have happened. I, I wrote a piece for the Sporting News in, in November around Thanksgiving about 
how the Kevin Durant thing was possible. Uh, it's on the Sporting News. You can read it. It's still true. And the, the Warriors haven't traded anybody, so the, the facts, the, the situation is there. The way that I would describe it for people who aren't familiar with the real cap minutia of it is that the Warriors could keep Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and and Festus Azili, and then one of the three of Bogut, Iguodala, and Barnes. So they would have to let the other two go. Presumably you get assets for them, whichever two you want to dump. And then they could get Durant. So they would still have a pretty good team. Pretty good team. They would still have a really good team. <laughs> and, and so the, the reason why the Barnes situation is so fascinating is because of what's called the moratorium. So the moratorium is this year is going to be 11 days, which is even longer than what seemed like forever last year. And during that time, nobody can sign. And something that, that became clearer during the Chandler Parsons situation two years ago is that a guy, so Harrison Barnes has a low salary cap hold. It's around $9 million. He's going to get a lot more than that. Until the Warriors decide to match his contract, it counts at the $9 million number. So even if he doesn't want to play ball, he doesn't want to wait, he wants to force their hand, they still get two weeks because July 1st to July 15th to figure all of that out. So even if he doesn't, you know, even if he's the least cooperative guy in the world, Kevin Durant still has two weeks to make his decision and they can make those other trades. So they can still do that, and it's a possibility. And so we'll have to see. I mean, but really, that's the only guy the Warriors would ever go through these crazy machinations for, because even Al Horford, as great as he is, I don't think they would give up those guys to get him. But is going out and getting someone like Kevin Durant, who many considered the second best player in the league a few years ago, is he someone who you could see fitting in well with this Warriors team? I know they have excellent offense and are very great at passing, but do they need any more elite talent? Basketball is a collaborative game, and the more talent you have, the better it looks. And Durant, the, the main reason that I would argue for it from the Warriors' perspective is that Durant choosing to go to the Warriors has the understanding of that of him doing that, you know, with the structure that they have, you know. He's not. He would be choosing to go to a team that has Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green. So he can't be sitting there going, "Oh, well, I want every possession to be an ISO for me." If he wants that, then he shouldn't sign with the Warriors. So you have to basically you have to get the buy-in beforehand. And it, it would be, of course, it would be different. You know, you're, you're definitely you're trading the possibility of another one of the best teams in basketball history for something else. But that something else also could be even better, and more importantly for the Warriors, has a longer window. Because as great as this team is right now, Andre Iguodala, I believe he turns, I believe he turns 32 during this season. Turns, and then will be, I think, will be 32 for most of the next season. Bogut, I think, is in his early 30s now. So what, what getting Durant does for the Warriors is it extends your window, you know, because he's going to be entering his prime right about now. So, you know, there there are reasonable minds who disagree, but I think that thinking of this year's Warriors team as what they're going to be for the next couple of years is just, it's a little bit misguided. Okay, so let's go to the next question here. At Teddy Ballgame 83 asks, who should the Celtics target that would be a good fit for Steven's system and culture? Well, the first guy I thought of, which is, uh, not, I wouldn't say it's a deadline guy, is they should make a hard push for Al Horford. He's a yes. really good player. He he fits in with their a little bit more immediate timeline, and he provides a, he provides a combination of skills that you're not going to get really through the draft unless you really hit the jackpot. So I think that's a really nice one. And also what we don't know with Al Horford is if he wants to be on a good team, I think you could, if you're Boston, you can make an argument that they're going to be better. The Hawks 
with Horford versus the Celtics with Horford, I think Boston wins that argument. Am I crazy to think so? Let's say in this hypothetical, Kevin Durant doesn't want to join the Warriors because he wants to be a star. Am I crazy to think that the Celtics would be a probably one of the better fits for him? He'd immediately become the best player on the team. There's a young core around him, and they have all the draft picks and assets. And he would be in the East and have an easier path to winning championships. I can't really think right now of a team that's kind of better suited to sign Kevin Durant, even though I think there's very little chance Kevin Durant ends up in Boston. You can make an argument. I mean, what all of these discussions for Kevin Durant center on is what, what matters the most to him. And I think you can make a case that if he wants to choose his, his place in 2016 and that's what he wants, that Boston's a good place for it. I just don't think my guess is that's not what he's going to value. I think in that kind of a case, he'd probably stay in Oklahoma City or he'd sign, maybe he'd sign what, what people like me call one plus one, which means one year and then a player option for the second year so that his timeline works with, with Westbrook and Ibaka because he, I would be beyond shocked if Durant signed a long-term deal with Oklahoma City right now because there's so much uncertainty around that. And if the, one, either one of the other guys leaves, you're kind of putting yourself on an island. And so that, that possibility hurts Boston because, you know, but Boston at the same time, they could, you know, if they hit on their pick, they could be an amazing op- option for him in 2017 too. I just I don't see any way that he doesn't sign a one plus one with OKC this offseason. There, I mean, Russell Westbrook's one of the five best players in the NBA right now, and Mavaka's a great player. They have a really good team. For God's sakes, even Enos Cantor is helping them win games right now. I mean, if you can if you can pull that off, you're a really good team. And it really comes down to how he feels about the front office and management. So if he has faith in them, and if he feels like Billy Donovan has a potential, or they have the potential to grow into a great team under Donovan, then I don't see how he goes away from that. The only thing that would make him sign elsewhere is if there really is some sort of major fissure between him and management. Yeah, the only two places I could see him not signing a one plus one for realistically would be the Wizards if the hometown pitch actually works, and their their talent's good, and the Warriors for kind of obvious reasons if that's what he yes. wants. So I think those are really the two. I think the, uh, for me, like I can't imagine him signing with the Lakers this summer because why do that when you can wait another year and then just do it next year and have a better idea of how good their players are and the reason that the Warriors and the Wizards are separate from that is because both of those markets basically seal off after this year in all likelihood for Kevin Durant so you have to you kind of have to choose on those two but everyone else you can wait all right our third and possibly final Twitter question from at Seafoam Jones uh, he's asking about the Philly big situation. I'm going to kind of extrapolate out because he, the wording's not great. But they have those three big men in Noel, Okafor, and Joel Embiid. Is there any possibility with the new focus on actually trying to win in Philadelphia that one of those big men could be available? I'm not – never say never because they, they had not a full change of management, but they had to change around, and so you never really know if they're going to shift from their style. I think it's a lot more likely – to happen at the draft or or in July, just because there'll be more options open to them and they'll have a better idea. What I'm what what I'm really intrigued by with them is whether the whether they will be able whether they'll be comfortable enough to make a decision on whether Noel and Okafor together works by the end of the season. Because if they have a decision on that, that makes it a lot easier to make a move kind of one way or the other. Okay, well, Seafoam Jones asked another question, and we are obliged to ask our fans Twitter questions on the air. He wants to know, 
what song did you get your first boner slow dancing to? For me, it was Too Close by Next. I don't know. I guess that's a downside of being old. But I'll like to, I'd like to say that it was more than words just because that would be awesome. So I'll say more than words because that song is amazing. All right, my answer was uh, You're So Vain by Carly Simon because I'm incredibly vain and the song was about me. And slow dancing in the mirror, I see. Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay, so, so, ser- you're, so you're Warren Beatty? That's good to know. <laughs> okay, a serious question, though. So Adam Silver said uh, today that he is looking to get rid of Hackashack this summer or at least make some sort of significant policy change to address it. How do you feel about that? I support making a change. Uh, if you want to, I, I can get my longer thoughts on it. I did a podcast with Kevin Pelton of ESPN. We talked a lot about this. But for me, the, the main ways that you change it is I think you get re- you further penalize fouls that occur in the def- that occur in the in the I guess you call it in the backcourt. So like once a possession changes, because that's just you know that's kind of outside the game, and that, so you do that. And then I would change a couple of other things. But, well, clear path, of course, there are some issues with that and intentional fouls. But, yeah, I think, to me, whether you think of basketball as an entertainment product or not, it's just going to that kind of a style, especially early in a quarter, just isn't representative of what we think basketball is. So I'm not saying, you know, maybe give the ability to decline every foul or something crazy like that because that shifts it a little too hard. But talk about ideas and try to find something that's a, a, a better solution than what we have right now. Well, what about repeat hack foul limitations? Like you can only do two in a row, and then at that point it's a technical foul or something like that. That's an idea. I, I don't love it as much as as kind of some of the other stuff. I also think that let's say the let's say you make the idea that you can't foul. You know, you can't foul a guy who's not involved in the play or something like that. Theoretically, the punishment of that, if you don't want the guy to get hacked, is actually pretty strong because they have to be outside of the play. Like think about if if you say you had a rule like that. And DeAndre Jordan was in the screen roll. In my vision of it, he would then you'd be allowed to foul. So if you had a guy like DeAndre Jordan, he just has to be standing by himself, and that's a lot easier to defend. So I would lean more towards that. Also, because then when you get into something like that, that could have to involve more ref judgment. I, I always get worried then, just like just like with clear path, actually. Well, how about like if you do the piggyback play? Let's say you're a guard and you jump on the center's back. How about for the next two plays, you have to give that center a piggyback ride? Support. Good. Or if the center happens to catch you while jumping on his back, then it's reversed and it's a foul on the other team. Or you so like can. Or the center can jump up in the air and body slam you into the ground. Put put a little bit of wrestling there's in there, a little a WWE. Re- there's a reason we have a D league. It's for all <laughs> ideas like this to be experimented with. They already advanced the ball at half court during timeout, so I think these are all great ideas for the main red claws to take up. Yeah, or some sort of. Well, I, I've said for years that, or not for years, for a little while now that like what I call a euro foul, which is a foul to stop a fast break. They should put a guy in the stockade. I think that's another way of doing this. <laughs> I like that. So NHL style penalty box, a, b- a box of shame. This is where yes. the fans could pelt him with uh, dried fruits and tomatoes. Yeah, hopefully they wear red. And, of course, those are abundantly available at basketball games in the NBA. Well, they should be. Those meals need to be more nutritious. That's true. We need a more balanced plate at the uh, at the game. Yeah, you never, you never know. It could be good for kids. All right, Danny, we're going to get you out of here on one last uh, Celtics question. Just basic prediction. Where do you see this team finishing in the East? Right now they're behind the Raptors and the Cavs and barely ahead of the Hawks and the Heat. Do you think they're good enough to be a top four team this year? Certainly, yeah. I, I think they could 
my guess is they finish fourth, and they they are in a competitive four or five series that they have a, a good shot in. You know, you, I already said in this podcast earlier what I thought was going to happen before the season, and yeah, they they could certainly get third. I mean, because when you look at the teams that are kind of in that mix, the the Celtics are probably the most consistent. The Hawks have been good at moments, but they've also had some weird flaws. And the Celtics also have been, I would argue, they've been less healthy than Atlanta. So my guess is four, but it could be anywhere from three to six. You know what? Actually, he lied. There's one more question I have for you. So, I mean, you're someone that I think really digs deep into the annals of the NBA. What is a topic or just something that you want to talk about that you feel that you pretty much haven't heard anywhere else talked about anywhere? It's just something that needs to be discussed. It doesn't Any, even have anything to be basketball related. Anything I, that in I this world. Whatever you want to talk about, Danny, here's your bully pulpit. Um, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I really actively do not care about the Hall of Fame and things like that right now with the idea of a professional basketball Hall of Fame. I think if the NBA wants to do an NBA Hall of Fame, that would be really interesting. But there have been discussions about that in terms of the All-Star game. Of course, I have a lot of opinions on that, but that has been talked about a lot. But... I love that they're trying to do something to celebrate basketball, but it's so nebulous that I just can't care. And I'm somebody who grew up reading books about the Baseball Hall of Fame, so I'm somebody who cares about the minutia sometimes. So I'll say that. Well, I mean, what would you want to see change about the Hall of Fame? Make an NBA-only one. Mm-hmm. And and then, and I don't know, I've always, the Simmons, ever since Simmons proposed the idea of having it in tears, I've thought that was really interesting. It's not the, it's not the only way to do it, but... And, and I would make it, you know, there, there's a challenge to it of making it narrower, you know, making it be a real honor to get in. Because what, you, what happens with the Hall of Fame is that once you start, once you kind of start letting in a little bit less great players, then you start to get these really frustrating arguments of, oh, well, they're better than the worst person who's in. And so, if, you know, if you make it a, a narrow list, like I think that the way that the NBA handled the, the 50 greatest players and all that, would be fun, but can you imagine if you opened it up, not just the 50 greatest players, but to really what the like to what a Hall of Fame should be? I think it'd be really fun. Well, here's a way to settle the argument: Is Vince Carter a Hall of Famer? An NBA Hall of Famer? Yes. I mean, if we're going if we're going by kind of the current wider definition, yes. But under like what I would like to see the Hall of Fame be, probably not. Because he was a great, he was a really good player, but I think that his prime wasn't long enough, and he didn't. He, his impact was not really on the game. It was, it was his impact is very different. I mean, I think he'd be on the fringe, and he gets a lot of bonus points by kind of reinventing himself and becoming a useful role player. Mm-hmm. But you know, he, he's to me, he's pretty clearly on the fringe. But I'd lean towards no under my format, but yes, under the current one. Because the thing is, his primary impact is more from a, uh, I'd say more from a pop culture perspective than an actual greatness and basketball achievement perspective. And of course, while he was incredibly innovative in his, you know, in his capabilities, he was kind of a destructive force when when he was in the prime of his career. And it took him a long time to really, I'd say, reinvent himself as a, as a good team player. And I know I spent up until the point where I was out actually in college and actually became a journalist, pretty much loathing him for the fact that I felt like maybe he was the player that wasted his ability to be a championship Hall of Fame player more than anybody out there, maybe except for Rasheed Wallace or Antoine Walker. Well, if you were if you were doing an NBA only Hall of Fame, would you who would be higher on your list, Vince Carter or T Mac? 
Uh, I would say T-Mac. I felt like T-Mac was actually a better leader and led, actually did a better job to lead his teams to actually contending. Unfortunately for him, obviously, the sample size is smaller. But, I mean, if I think about it, I think T-Mac probably had more great years than Vince Carter even did. And he had he, he was a bigger part of more successful teams, yeah. at least off the top of my head. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings it back to what do you want the Hall of Fame to be? Is it a historical record of the greatest players or is it kind of like a museum for fans because which is what it's become really it's based that's what it is now there's like a lot of fun interactive games but if it's like just a a general history of the game and it's not a ranking of players then you feel like at least the video of his uh what was the 99 dunk contest yep that's got to be in there but i agree with you i don't think he's a, a player if you're just listening in terms of this is the top 15 percent of players to, to ever play Oh, yeah, you put in, no matter what, whether he's in or he isn't in, you put an exhibit of what he did because he is a contributor in that sense, and I don't think you can tell the story of NBA basketball without him. But that doesn't mean he gets in as a player. I mean, there are lots of guys who, who kind of fit into that. I mean, another guy who I'm biased towards as, as a UCLA alum is Bill Walton. Like, if there was an NBA-only only Hall of Fame, I'm not, I'm not sure how you handle him. He's actually probably the, him and Grant Hill are probably the hardest guys yeah. to figure out. But no matter what, you include them in something. It's just whether they make it as a player is a different question. And then, of course, there's all the players that flamed out early from cocaine in the 70s and 80s, too. I mean, how do you, how do you get, treat those guys? They get their own separate wing, <laughs> the cocaine wing. They get the, they get the powder room. One more thing. Are you going to be coming here for Sloan? No, I'm not. Oh, come on. When are you going to come? I came once before I knew you. <laughs> well, you sh- once you met me, you should have been, oh, I got a friend in Boston. Now I have to come every single year. It's worth the money. My guess is I'll probably come next year just because it's been a while. But uh, and, and now like now that I know more media people and all that, it'd be, it's, it's always fun to see people. I mean, now that I covered the finals last year, and so it's like now I know more people. And, you know, through every, through Nate knowing almost everybody now, I even know people by proxy. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like to make it out there. I'm not even doing All-Star this year either. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. But I'll do Summer League if I can, and I'll do, I'll hopefully do, depending on how far the Warriors go, I'll do as much of the playoff run as I can. Well, you'll probably be doing at least the Western Conference Finals this year, hopefully. Yeah, yeah that would it'd be pretty bad if I didn't. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Spurs and Warriors can't play in the Finals, which is too bad. Oh, God, you, don't, you didn't give me the option of things that have been talked about and do my whole crazy playoff idea. You've heard it, right? No, no. go up. Okay, so my playoff idea is, it's actually kind of similar to what the D-League does, though I didn't know that when I kind of conceived of it. Is So it's 16 teams, and you so you have the first eight seeds, and those teams are what you could call protected, or I would call them host seeds, because those are the teams that are going to be the, the home team. Then you have the other eight, and you give the team with the best record the choice among the bottom eight. Ooh, so they I can like pick that. whoever they want. So you do that. And then you do that same, so you go all the way through, you do a selection Saturday or whatever you do on the last day of the season or the next day. And then, because the NBA basically waits until the round is done anyway, you do that each round. So then what that does is it maintains the advantage of finishing with the best record, and it creates a whole lot of animosity, which I personally love. Mm -hmm. So you get this whole idea of, you know, team saying like, oh, look, they picked us. But the biggest part of it for me is it creates a more proper incentive for doing well, and it eliminates all of the, actually what I find the more insidious form of tanking, which is playoff seed tanking. So a team just like, they maneuver around and just for like a specific game and things like that. <laughs> because if you go that way, everybody pushes all the way to the goal line because there's no disincentive. I'm just imagining like kind of the NCAA March Madness Selection Sunday style uh, videos of like live feeds of the teams when they get announced oh, and they yes. get picked. That's just, 
entertainment value through the roof for that scenario. I mean, I'm just excited yeah. for all the coach interviews of uh, all the different political maneuvers they have to make to get to explain why they picked the team or why they this team hates them now because they picked them and the signs of disrespect it means to pick that team. I don't think the league would ever go for it because of the PR nightmare it would be, but I absolutely would love it from a basketball perspective. And from and for me, it's not only from a basketball from a from a from an entertainment perspective, but from a fairness perspective, because you you get the reward for finishing first. And the other big difference I should have mentioned this at the outset is in case somebody gets hurt. Like remember that there was a year I think it was Gilbert Arenas got hurt, and so the Cavs were like the three seed, and they all of a sudden they got a team, or they were the six or something like that, and all of a sudden they got this really weakened Wizards team, and they rolled through. It's like. Well, no, if the team's going to get that benefit, it might as well be the team with the best record because they have the best record. So you, you think that if a team has an injury, they should be able to change the circumstances to account, to account for it? No, I think that the team that benefits, the team that benefits from that should be the team with the best record as opposed to being just some rando team. Mm-hmm. Because, I- yeah, I mean, th- th- that's just that creates an incentive to have the best record. And... Also, that way, I, I mean, I would probably guarantee, even though uh, I'm thinking about whether you'd give division winners an automatic spot in the 16, yeah, I probably would, but I would also equalize the schedule, too. So that's another big thing with that. So divisions do matter again? No, I would say, ideally for me, they wouldn't. I would say, I, I've, this part is also, I've said before, is that my ideal system would be everybody plays everybody twice, and I would expand the league probably to 34 teams. Mm-hmm. So then you play, six, you play 66 games. And then that would you wouldn't have any more back to backs. You could do a lot of different things, and you, there's some good markets that are underserved right now. This sounds like a Seattle bias. I, I have no. I've only been there once, but I think it would be. I think it'd be good for the league if Seattle had a team. I think there would be. I think it'd be. They'd be in the top half. You know, they'd be in the top half of the revenue model. If you could add, let's say, let's say you added, and also the NBA, which is something that they they've used at other times, is they don't have to put in an even number of teams if they expand because doesn't really matter so especially if you eliminate conferences and you have everybody play everyone twice you want to have 31 teams fine you want to have 33 teams fine well that means vancouver needs to get its team back seattle needs to get its team back i'd put one in montreal why not yeah cincinnati second team team in chicago that makes sense san diego could probably host one or Orange County, either way. Yeah, yeah Saint, I mean, Saint Louis could do it. Although, the, like you, you the, could yeah. add, you could add four NBA teams that would be in the top half of the revenue scale. So then they'd be, they'd be adding to it and adding to the value of every other team. Do you I think like the it. talent level is uh, enough in the NBA, where that it wouldn't dilute the, the kind of in each individual team? Do you think those four teams would? How long would it take for one of them to kind of actually make an impact or be good enough to be one of the top sixteen teams in there or to make your crazy playoff system? Not that long. I, I think it would, well, then, yeah, I mean, actually, and then 16 would be a more fair number. Right now it's more than half the league, which is ridiculous. But I don't think it would take that long because of the value of, of like, basically how so many teams have open cap space now. I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't take that long. What you, would, what you would deal with there is, of course, the, individual great, the individually great talents would, would raise in value. But you're, also the big reason why that would change is because if you're shortening the season, that also means that starters could play a higher proportion of minutes. So you would, again, bias it towards that because you wouldn't have to do what the Spurs do and tactically rest guys if you never have back-to-backs. I love this. I love this. Let's make it happen. Let's get Adam on the phone. Silver, where are you? Let's let's make this See, happen Danny, right now. See, this is why you need to come to the Sloan Conference so you can present this uh, academic paper right next to Mike Zarin and see what he has to say about it. 
Yeah, well, we'll see. I, I also I have opinions on the wheel, but we'll leave those for another time. Um, so, Danny, thank you for joining us. You, you can find Danny LaRue on Real GM, on Sporting News, on the Real GM podcast, where I've been a, a lucky, lucky guest a few times, and on the Dunked On podcast. Where can we find you on the interwebs? I'm on Twitter. It's Danny LaRue, um, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I have a Facebook page, which kind of I compile my stuff. That's Danny LaRue MBA. And yeah, that's probably that's probably the two best ways. And because, and if I ever end up somewhere new, it'll probably it'll end up on those two places. All right, thank you so much for joining us, man. Anytime. Well, thanks to Danny Larue. Thanks to you listening. Thanks to everybody in the entire world that's ever lived in existence. Thanks to the dinosaurs. We miss you guys. Shout out to the submarines, to the Eskimos, to the Army Navy listening in their um, their boats and stuff. To the podcast. Um, thanks to the Twitter followers who actually asked some questions. Yes, good to, good to have some fan interaction on this one. Thanks to we all of our question, fans. We had a question about boners, and we're That's obligated true. to ask it. And we asked it because you, the fans, requested it. So anything you tweet us, we're pretty much going to say on the air. So feel free to say anything you want. And that was only because the question was about boners. If it was, if it was about anything else, there would be no obligation. But this is a bonerific podcast, so we got to keep it fresh. We're not, we don't want to take ourselves too seriously, just seriously enough that you'll listen. Yeah, so anything that combines boners, music, and good times, we're going we're gonna to talk about in the WBI Celtics podcast. Okay, well, in honor of a passive legend today, let's play some Earth, Wind, and Fire and get out of here. For Samuel Barnaby Packard, I'm Jared Michael Weiss of CLNS Radio. We'll catch you next week on the WEI Celtics podcast. All right, WEI Celtics podcast intro, take 37. Three, two, one. Welcome to the WEI Celtics podcast. It's Johnny B and the Cheese here. Johnny B, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Really, I thought your voice was going to be a little bit stronger if you got top billing, but I am the Cheese, and we're doing, having a great time. The Celtics have won seven of their last eight games. They're playing bananas. It's amazing. Well, I, I just think that the Celtics, their their execution on offense has been really good as of late, and you know, I'm just I'm thinking that 
maybe having Kelly Olenek as a distributor from the top of the key would be ideal for opening up backdoor cutting lanes with the spacing. Whoa! Johnny B coming with the hot fire takes about <laughs> Kelly Man Bun Olenek. I would have to agree. Their assist percentage in these past eight games has been over 60%, which is phenomenal. I think they're really going to have face a tough test, though, on Friday night when they play the Cavaliers. I mean, the Cavaliers, they can stretch the floor, but they're playing at a slow pace, and the Celtics want to push it against them. And even though Ty Lue says that they're going to play at a faster pace, that's something the Celtics already do really well. So it'll be fascinating to see if the Celtics can actually try to beat the Cavs at the game that they claim that they want to play. All right, we got two weeks left until the trade deadline, and to kind of analyze all that, we'll bring in Danny LaRue from Real GM and Sporting News to break it all down. Danny's a really great uh, reporter. I've known him for a few years now. Um, I really think he's just kind of tremendous at really analyzing things from a perspective of management. And uh, he really knows the CBA really well. One of the best out there wrote the guide to the CBA. He hosts both the Real GM podcast and also appears on the Nate Duncan's Dunk Dom podcast and Real GM. It's really great to have Danny here with us. And the Dunk John podcast is something I listen to every day when I'm stuck on the red line, just sweating my balls off, standing next to 200 of my closest friends. Uh, also, stay tuned for the end of the Danny LaRue interview. He reveals his idea for a real waxadaisical playoff system that I'm a huge fan of. I know. I mean, it would be amazing to see that kind of reform happening in Adam Silver's NBA. He's really shown that he's willing to be to hear all ideas, even ones from men with curly hair like Danny LaRue. All right, let's go to our conversation with Danny LaRue right now. This is the Cheese signing off. Danny LaRue! Celtics Podcast. The Seas, they're a podcast about the Celtics. Hey, it's a Celtics podcast here on WB. Hi, welcome back to Johnny B and the Cheese. We actually have a wolf <laughs> in the studio. It's been devouring our young. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.